Welcome to Insights. This is Paul Ellis, Managing Director of Ellis Wealth Management, where we encourage you to invest in what you love. Ellis Wealth Management is an independent financial services firm focused on planning, advice, coaching, and investment management. We are dedicated to the families we serve, and we encourage you to invest in what you love. Within Insights, we look at ways to make our world richer through focusing on sharing, and developing human capital. Well, all right. What a beautiful day it is in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, It's been cold chilly, but I would prefer to use the term fresh. (laughs) It's very fresh today. Listen, I want to thank you for joining us. And as you're aware, on Insights, we highlight human capital and enjoy wonderful conversations with truly amazing people. At Ellis Wealth Management, we champion this type of successful human capital, surround and support it with planning, coaching, and professional investment management. Clients of Ellis Wealth Management also receive access to private content and information. And today, I wanted to share a private conversation with Sarah Baldwin. She's the COO and Portfolio Manager at Longboard Asset Management. She sat down with me recently to share her insights with our private client family. So as a special treat, I pull back the curtain today and share with you a private client conversation with Sarah Baldwin. Well, good morning, and what a pleasure to have you join us today, and equally, it's a pleasure to have with us Sarah Baldwin. Sarah is the COO and Portfolio Manager at Longboard Asset Management, and she's so kind to share, spend some time with us today and share with us some of her thoughts uh, regarding, regarding the market and what's going on in the world around us. Sarah! Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Paul. Thanks I, for having me. Oh, my pleasure. It's it's afternoon there. It's morning here, so I don't want to confuse anybody who's listening. <laughs> but yes, I, magic I, of the internet. That is it. That is it. And you are in the beautiful state of Florida, and we are the longest flight from where you're at up here in the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. So. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, if you would, tell us a little bit about what you do at Longboard as COO and Portfolio Manager and your mission. Sure. Thanks, Paul. 
So I've been at Longboard just about five years now. I think last week was my five-year anniversary. I started and joined the portfolio management team really from the beginning of the area. My background's in in asset management. I uh, studied economics. That's really kind of the nerdy side of me. One of the areas when you work at a small company like Longboard, you realize that a lot of people wear a lot of different hats. So over the years, I've kind of stepped into the COO position as well, helping kind of keep the trains running on schedule when making more strategic decisions about the product and new product rollout. And I oversee the development team, although I'm not a coder. So the scope can be fairly broad, but I would summarize it and say, I put my number one job as making sure our clients can feel safe in how their money is being managed. And we take that very seriously at Longboard. Well, you do a really good job. And um, you also have a passion for investors uh, for a long-term viewpoint. Uh, Share that story with, with us again, if you would. Oh, I'd be happy to. So my family had a family business that made them significant amounts of wealth in the early 1900s. And over the next 100 years or so, they managed to make bad decisions in investing and pull money out at the wrong times and put money in at the wrong times, and really kind of lost that whole generational wealth that they had accumulated. So I kind of went into college age really fascinated by this problem of how to manage money. When you show up as I was kind of a math nerd in a school studying economics, you really dive into the math of what's happening. And I certainly did that during my educational years. Following that, however, and, and mostly more so at Longboard than anywhere in my career, I learned that there's an emotional component to investing and staying invested and avoiding making the bad decisions. And as I've always had this passion of helping people manage the ups and downs of markets. What I've learned most recently and how I've leveled that up in the last five years or so is doing so with humans who have emotions and feelings and fears and all the scary things that make us our own worst enemies sometimes. So Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time trying to explain what we do at Longboard in a simple way so that our clients can feel comfortable with what they're doing and focus on accumulating wealth or managing their money other ways. Excellent. Excellent. Well, now the $65,000 question, and I know that you get asked this a lot, in your looking glass, what are you seeing for the markets now and for the remainder of fourth quarter, which is a short-term view, not a long-term view? Sure. So just for reference, we're filming this or recording this the day before the midterm elections, one of the counterintuitive components of midterm elections is that markets tend to like a divided government. So I'm just going with the numbers here, which sometimes will serve you and sometimes certainly not serve you. But I think if there's a base case that we end up getting a split and the Republicans regain control of the House. I think that that could be pretty good news going into the last couple weeks of the year. And so we've seen some buoyancy in the stock market as of late. I think that's some of 
pricing in what's likely going to be a split government. And I think that could continue. Certainly seen a lot of tension in markets. And how I would summarize what we've seen recently is coming up for a breath of air, seeing what's happening, what is the impact of the recent massive moves in monetary policy, and kind of a regrouping as we enter the end of this year, which has been a wild one, seeing the 60-40 portfolios of stocks and bonds some of the taking some of the worst beatings I've taken in generations. Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting experience in that you know we've always been taught in a classical environment that stocks and bonds work like a teeter totter, one's up and the others down, the others down and the others up. That has not been the case this year. It has not been the case. It, it, the last time I remember something similar was after the 2008 global crisis, everything anyone was talking about was how much inflation was going to hit the economy because of the first 2008 quantitative easing that we had. And we never saw it because human behavior changed. Fascinatingly, after 2020, where those textbooks, which seemed to not make sense in 2008 anymore, are starting to make more sense saying when you pump the economy full of excess cash, it's likely to have inflation. So we're starting to see that happen. But I agree that teeter-totter logic of framework of how people think about stocks and bonds has been really put under constraints this year. And and I'm not sure it's something that is going to just naturally fix itself looking ahead. Well, inflation is a big problem. But how much does the supply chain and the producer's price index, how, how much does that factor in as well? In other words, when it costs businesses more money to make X, uh, and of course they pass that on to the consumer, how much does the supply chain and the cost to bring the goods to bear uh, factor into this inflation number that we're looking at? Yeah, I think that's the right question to be asking and to add on to it, I would say one of the worst things about inflation is it has a self-propagating nature. The more we talk about inflation, the more likely things are going to be inflationary. But also we have to talk about prices going up in supply chain issues. So I think that what was likely the sequence and, you know, over time we'll unpack this and once we have a full picture is, We certainly had supply chain issues post-2020 COVID lockdowns and and those adjustments that kicked off some price inflation that was paired with excess, a a lot of excess cash in the system. So that made it even more so. And coming out of a major crisis like a war or a pandemic, people want to spend money on things. And those prices were going up. People want to buy stuff. Prices are going up because supply isn't isn't where it needs to be. And I think that system follows the framework of kind of how we were taught in school, where the X factor is for me is on wage inflation. And I think specifically down in Florida, I live in kind of a tourist area, and we have a lot of service workers. And I think during the 2020 lockdown, with 
you know, whether we meant to or not, we said to many of the service workers, go figure it out. You don't have a job. It's going to take you weeks until you get your unemployment payment. And yeah, maybe you don't have to pay rent, but that's all we can tell you. These are people who most often are living paycheck to paycheck, really scrambling to go figure it out in, in, in no uncertain terms. And in many of them did. The gig economy had already been started. So more people are driving Uber. More people are selling things on their own online. More people are learning that they need to spend less. So they need to make less. And I think that the service industry and, and wage inflation in general, even up the ranks from the service industry to tech developers and everyone in the middle, um, it's not clear to me how that's going to shake out yet. I think service industry specifically is going to require higher wages. This is not, uh, you know, as an economist, they kind of take a, a pure approach on what I think wages are. I've never been kind of in favor of raising minimum wages because it's too invasive in terms of telling people how to run their business. But what you're seeing now is actually the workers saying, pay us more. And that's how it's supposed to go. If wages are going to go up, that makes sense. And we're seeing that. So while to come full circle on this supply chain issue and excess cash issue, which is still active, the X factor to me is the wage inflation. So wage inflation is a, is a real challenge, you, but you can only pay someone if you're actually making money. I mean, that's, that's part of the other part of the, mm-hmm. the, the business contract, right? So businesses that are not doing well, and even some really big businesses, we're seeing Twitter's going to be laying off about half of their employees, I think, uh, 30 to, mm-hmm. 30% to 50%. Facebook announced that they're going to do layoffs. Microsoft is down 34% for the year. Google's down 40%. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's, that's, a pre- that's pressure, that that's real pressure and that real pressure in addition to the need for higher wages those are like two currents that are going to crash into each other at some point and I, I couldn't agree more now will the fed follow the lead of other countries like the uk and japan because there was this conversation globally that they're all going to tighten uh, the uk recognized that they had some issues in their pension funds and a lot of it had to do with derivatives a lot of it had to do with the fact that the QE kept interest rates low that allowed for them to create the derivatives that they put in there in in their pension funds and now they're having to pivot they're having to go back to a form of QE Japan is also mm-hmm. stating that they're going to start back up their version of QE so do you think that the Fed will follow the lead of these countries, or do you think that they are going to continue their march to whatever milestone they look to reach? Yeah, I think it's a great question. My opinion is that it's going to be data dependent, and I think the Fed is okay with markets hoping for some pivot that would make it make the Fed less hawkish. I think they welcome kind of a relief rally slightly from the stock market in if some people are hoping maybe we have peaked or have come close to peaking. So I don't know that they could get away. Well, 
let me say it a different way. I think there's a lot of damage that would be done committing to getting inflation down if then because of a stock market sell-off, the Fed reverses their policy and pivots. Now, you'll hear me say there would be some brand damage done there, and that wouldn't be the first time for central banks, right? They will have to change policy. One of the most fascinating things about the Fed or clients will hear me say a lot is there's a line in the fan where they're not comfortable with a stock market sell-off. We don't necessarily know where that line is. Nothing has seen yet that the stock market's gone down enough that the Fed's going to message that they're changing their strategy. But I suspect in 2023, we could find where that line is. What are they comfortable with? What are they not comfortable with? And what I found from reading Fed statements for years is it's pretty binary, meaning they're totally fine with a stock market sell-off until it hits a level that they're just not comfortable with. And you'll see a lot of people speaking about more dovish pivot, you know, adjusting the policy to soothe markets more. So I don't think we've gotten to their pain point where they stop. And I think they've backed themselves into a corner of committing to following uh, data dependency. So we still get some mega inflation rates and some really tough unemployment numbers. Then I think they're going to keep going. If and when I say tough unemployment, tough to if we're at full employment and and strong employment, it's tough for the Fed to not continue hiking. If you have inflation and pretty good employment numbers, they kind of have to keep keep hiking into that, even if they don't want to, or even if the stock market's falling. Now, will they do that? I don't see any sign that they're changing yet. I thought actually this last release was kind of fascinating because all the headlines were about a potential pivot. And I, I think it's possible, but this, and actually immediately after the Fed release, that's what the headlines were. And the stock market rallied from that, hoping that was what's going to happen. And then later in the day, by the end of the day, the stock market had reversed completely and sold off because when asked, the Fed said we're data dependent. So at this time, I think we need to listen to what they're saying that they're data dependent. What's more likely going to be a factor is both the unemployment numbers and the inflation numbers, probably for the next year. Well, thank you. That's that's interesting. I'm I'm not a huge fan of the Fed. You know that uh, from our private <laughs> conversations, and when. Um, when when people are when the market is dependent on someone who is not dependent is supposed to reach a particular pain point that they have while the rest of us are having pain um <laughs> to me that's like Absolutely. going that's going to the dentist and saying uh the dentist says look when this hurts me i'm going to stop pulling on yeah. your teeth <laughs> yeah right um yeah. that generally doesn't work well for the person in the chair so but um, but but there are things that need that that need to be worked through for sure. Well, let's talk about credit risk, liquidity risk, and stagflation. We looked at credit risk earlier this year with the with the rise in rates. Um, now we're looking at a liquidity risk issue where you know companies they're having to choose: do they pay their uh, 
do, do they pay their mortgage or their their lease or do they pay their employees? And now we're seeing mm-hmm. businesses laying off employees, which again, liquidity is like that oil in the engine. It's you, you got to have it in order to keep it going. Um, the higher the rates go, the harder it is to get credit or to secure liquidity. And the higher the rates go, the, the more challenges there are with uh, non-liquid assets, large non-liquid assets like housing. So those dominoes do connect. And I'd love to hear your viewpoint on where we are regarding credit risk, liquidity risk, and then that thing called stagflation that <laughs> is often talked about but not often explained. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I, I think that's a, another great area to kind of wade into. First point I would make about the employment and adjustments and layoffs and even inflation, businesses will be strategically opportunistic. And what I mean by that is if you are thinking about raising your prices, if you're a business and you make widget and you've been charging $10 a widget for the last 50 years, right? We know it's not, this is an imperfect example, but if you had been doing that in the last year, you're kind of crazy if you haven't raised your prices because you get the cover of national inflation, international, global inflation problems. And so you have the social capital to say, hey, we've been making these widgets for 50 years. We're, we're sorry to tell you, but we're raising our, our price to $15 a widget. And yes, I believe their prices have gone up and they have some reasons because the tools needed to make it and their rent needed to have a factory and the labor costs for those items are going up. But businesses are opportunistic in the same way Whenever you see kind of a pullback, recession talk, or a drop in market in the stock market, businesses are opportunistic in a way that they're going to say, you know, now's the right time to socially kind of clean up the bottom, most uh, least productive, most inefficient, worst workers that we have, mm-hmm. right? Yep. It doesn't always happen that way, but that's kind of the window. You You have a lot more cover air cover with what's happening in the macro level so i think what uh, some of what we're seeing the twitter is kind of a one-off but some of these tech companies a lot of what we're seeing is this is the counterbalance back to the seesaw analogy this is the counterbalance of the era of hire whoever you can (laughs) pay them whatever they want give them any benefit or perk that they want you want to make double what you used to make work from home and only work three days a week well, you kind of could have gotten a job like that in 2021. Some people did. <laughs> and now when the you know the situation calms down, it's, hey, do we really need these workers who we let have massive bonuses, sign-on bonuses, package deals? Maybe these are the people we need to be cutting and, and reevaluating now that we are not in massive undersupply of labor. So I think that's what's happening is more indicative of, businesses being opportunistic and less about some massive market cycle. We're still seeing lots of purchases. We're still seeing lots of activity. We're still seeing lots of growth, a lot of productivity. 
And I think that at the moment, I would infer that this is more to do with chance to balance out the seesaw, less about, hey, we got to really kind of plan for this crash landing that's coming our way and we got to get this off our books as fast as possible. Like I said, Twitter is slightly different because it sounds like it was just a series of events that it wasn't as stable as maybe some people thought. And so, but, you know, I think it's common. I think it doesn't surprise me that I think it was the last time we talked, we were talking about how Netflix and Hulu and all these providers that provide services that people use in their homes are raising their prices probably raising their prices more than they needed to, to cover their rising costs. Mm -hmm. And so now they're in a better place. Now, if they can also cut their labor costs and cut these old, these contracts with people who are from a couple of years old or a couple of year old contracts with people that are really inefficient for the company, they're actually going to be in the healthiest position possible because they got through, they raised their prices. No one's expecting them to say, hey, we don't have a labor shortage anymore. We're going to go drop our prices $5 a month right. from Netflix. That's not going to happen. And when they cut like some of the least productive people on the team, then all of a sudden you actually have a really healthy business. So have some positive hope for where that could bring us. That makes sense. The businesses are planning for the future and they're using the opportunity that's afforded them to clean up their balance sheet and clean up some other things as well. It sounds like. So let me ask yeah. you, let me ask you this question. You have a, a passion for families and for long-term wealth. And here we are in a situation where the market has been challenged and it looks like it may be challenged again next year, regardless of how people vote. Right now, it's going to take time to fix some things. So what are some helpful mindsets for investors? And let me ask for each segment, because each segment has its own concerns and timelines. And I, I often find that money managers or talking heads on TV ignore that. We have senior citizens who don't have a lot of time. In other words... Mm -hmm. They're on a fixed income, and they don't have seven years for the market to turn around. Gen Xers, they are professionals, but they may be raising kids. They may, you know, the sandwich generation, mm -hmm. they're still raising kids, and now they're also taking care of mom and dad. They may not have five to seven years for a market to turn around if it pulls back uh, dramatically. And then, of course, young professionals, by and large, they have a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So time can work for you, but it, depending upon what segment you're in, you, you have to navigate that. So what are some of your thoughts keeping those segments in mind regarding mindsets for this environment? Another good question. So one thing I would start with is I think there's a mental game when you're working, you're accumulating wealth, right? We understand how that works, especially towards the end of your career. And you're hopefully accumulating wealth at the highest speed or one of the highest speeds that you had in your career. So you're in this mental mindset of accumulating wealth where I think I've seen it go wrong. The worst for people is when you turn that off and now you're 
no longer in a wealth accumulation stage, but your brain doesn't know that. And you turn to your investments as the new place where you feel like you're accumulating wealth. And I understand, right? All of a sudden you have a lot of time in your hands. You're no longer getting a paycheck and you want to put your energy somewhere. And I see a lot of people dive into their portfolios. I Mm. happen to see a lot of my family, my own family, many of whom my um, mom's family members, many of whom or all of whom are in retirement. And the only thing anyone could talk about was the stock market, right? Because it matters and it matters so, so much. But there's this mental trick that happens where your brain, I think, believes this is my new way to accumulate wealth. But it, you're not trained, if you're, if you're not trained to realize that it's just going to look very different. The nice thing about a paycheck is you can count on it. The not nice thing about the stock market is that you cannot count on it being consistent. And so if you're trying to take that paycheck, oh, I love looking at my bank account every other week and seeing it go up by certain amount, that is not the frame to look at your portfolio. Mm -hmm. So my high level answer to that, and then even go all the way. So those are retirees, people who are living on fixed, fixed income. And then all the way to the people who are in the accumulation stage, maybe have decades until they retire. Those people would say, don't even look at your portfolio. Find someone, do more due diligence on the person who's helping you manage your money than you do on almost anything and do everything you can to break that kind of grip on what's happening within your investment portfolio. I wouldn't be as bold to ask the same thing from retirees just because we know this is, you know, these are people who are doing the math like, I really hope I can get another 20 years out of this nest egg that I've put away and I have to be able to, or else I'm going to have to talk to my kids about borrowing money, things that no one would ever want to do. And so I just would challenge that part of the psychology to say, are you thinking about your balances and your investments the same way you thought about receiving a paycheck? And if so, or receiving um, your just, that benefits, if you're thinking of it the same way, that's where I think people get the most trapped. And if you say, although I only have a finite number of years left out of this retirement period, hopefully as long as possible, the more I watch it day to day, the more torturous. Right. That's how slow the toast is. You can't watch toast, uh, cooking toast, right? These things this is a form of torture that I wouldn't wish on my worst nightmare. Certainly not someone who's worked really hard to find a financial advisor they respect and accumulate a nest egg that's going to take them through this stage of their life. That just sounds like a a special form of torture. So anything moving away from day to day, let me, let you, Paul, let, let people do that. You pay us to do that, to take the torture of following along every step of the way so that you don't, need to because I don't think you lighten the reins completely where you're not involved and if something's wrong that you wouldn't be unaware but you're finding a new balance in this new life post-retirement is going to lead to a lot of peace or a lot of torture however that gets done. And panic is generally not a good um, emotion to be 
be bringing into decision making. No. So no. That, that regardless of which segment, whether one's a senior, a Generation Xer, uh, if you find yourself in the sandwich uh, environment, sandwich generation, or a young professional, um, making decisions based off of either greed or fear, panic or pressure generally does not generally does not pay off well. Absolutely. And, and I'll even give you an anecdote about that, which is a trading related anecdote is I used to work at a different um, hedge fund and we traded a lot all day, every day, very unlike what we do now at Longboard, which is more strategic long-term investing. But occasionally everyone on the trading desk, eventually you'd make a mistake. So you get an order to buy something and you accidentally sell something with that amount of volume. Someone was maybe once a quarter, someone would make a mistake. The policy, if you made a mistake was that you, the mistake maker were not allowed to fix your mistake because some of the worst mistakes that were ever happened were the people who, Oh no, I went, I needed to sell that stock, but instead I bought it. Okay. I'm going to fix it. I just bought more. And it's like, you just doubled up your mistake because <laughs> you're stressed out and you're, you're overwhelmed and, and you're not seeing clearly. So I always love that policy that if you make the mistake, you can't be the person to fix it exactly to your point of you're in, you're fearful, you're stressed, you're overwhelmed. No one makes good decisions in that era. And in fact, you're your own liability. And so we helped each other out. We worked as a team. If someone made a mistake, someone else would fix it calmly. That's a great, that's a great uh, policy. It really is because it allows for clear eyes and, Calm hands. Uh-huh. Excellent. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? You've been very generous with our time, and we've topped, we've touched on some topics that are, we've touched on some topics that aren't always discussed, but is there anything else that we haven't covered that you think we should cover? That's a good question. The, the one area that I would just shine a light on so people understand how my job changes in a higher interest rate environment is how people manage cash is incredibly different when we have near zero interest rates or four plus interest rates and rising. And so I just want to make sure that we don't let that kind of fly by cash management is not the sexiest part of portfolio management, mm -hmm. but it's one of the most important parts because it can be done poorly. It can be done right. And at times it's incredibly important. And so there's a value to having cash in a portfolio. That's for sure. Especially, you know, if we run a mutual fund. If people need to take money out or put money in our accounts, kind of a revolving door of money in and money being spent. Um, but in a world with higher interest rates, sitting on a little nest egg has a very, in a world also with inflation, has a very dangerous effect where I'm kind of, my personal approach to investing can be pretty conservative because I've seen some of these crises and I've seen people lose a lot of money. But I just think it's not, I don't, I wouldn't feel great if we just let this one go, which is 
if you're sitting on a nest egg, you're losing money in a high inflation environment with high interest rates. And so it's an area where I think financial advisors add a tremendous amount of value because it's a reframing situation where you say this might make you feel comfortable to have some extra cash on hand, but actually it's sand slipping through your hand if you're losing purchasing power from that money. So Mm -hmm. I think a chance to reiterate that to your uh, clients is important to me because it's of the utmost important at importance at the stage of where we are in the in the economy. Yeah, I agree. I think it's always important to understand why you're doing what you're doing. If you can articulate the strategy and you know why and you know the pros and cons of it, then good. If you don't know the pros and cons of it or can't quite articulate it, um, that would be a really good time to speak with myself or a financial advisor as to getting a really good understanding of why you're doing what you're doing, especially mm-hmm. especially when there's a lot of confusion, frustration, um, or a wall of worry in the market. For, for the clients that understand why, they sleep a lot better at night. For the mm-hmm. clients that are merely gripping and trying to hold on, that's not good. That's not a good rest, and that's generally not a good decision. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes how that manifests is people will get very hands-on with their portfolio instead of hands-on with how do I trust the person who's managing it. And in all environments, it's about how to find someone who's communicative. Right. Uh, I don't get asked to be on a lot of financial advisor podcasts, right? That it's already kind of an area where you must stand set yourself apart and stand out and also calm, right? You and I can have heated debates and we talk about all that's happening in the world, but we're calm and, and just kind of prepared to help in a human way, which is the area that I said at the beginning, I feel most kind of tied to because these are very human problems and decisions. I think, Back to your point about the Fed, it, the Fed can make it feel very scientific and mathematical, and scientific and mathematical doesn't necessarily feel very human, and that's where this gap is about how to manage money and how to plan for retirement. Absolutely. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. You're so generous, and we truly appreciate your insight and your wisdom that you're sharing with us and would love to have you back again in the future. Um, In the meantime, if someone is interested in following Longboard or following uh, you if you're on LinkedIn or, or Instagram or some other coordinate, could you share the best way for someone to follow you uh, in, in that fashion? Sure. So I think almost everywhere I am Sarah.e.baldwin and on LinkedIn on, on there, on Twitter I'm on there. And I think Longboard also has a LinkedIn and Twitter account. And sometimes it's valuable. Sometimes it's just some of my random thoughts that I'm having, but you can certainly access me there and And I do have people reach out to me um, occasionally, so happy to speak to anyone. Excellent. And if it's all right with you, I'll put that contact information in the show notes. Certainly. 
Excellent. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. We truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate you, and we trust that you enjoyed this special edition of Insights. And until next time, let me encourage you to always invest in what you love.